0: Hi, and welcome to Conductor, where we are two sisters on a mission to amplify female voices on the podium. Join us as we interview leaders in the field of choral music, share resources, and build a community for current and future teacher conductors, all while exploring the gender divide. I'm Kira Starr. And I'm McKenna Stenson. And we are
1: Conductor.
0: Conductor. All right, good morning everyone and welcome to Conductor. We are so excited today to have Dr. Jessica Napolis on the podcast with us. Thank you so much for being with us today, Dr. Napolis.
2: It's my pleasure, thank you.
0: All right, a
1: bit about her professional background. Dr. Jessica Nevelis is associate professor of choral music education at the University of North Texas. Previous to her appointment, she was associate professor of choral music education at the University of Utah, where she taught coursework in choral methods, quantitative research methods, and conducted the women's chorus. Her passion is in training music education students to be effective teachers and collaborating with local schools in partnerships for her students to gain teaching opportunities. Dr. Napolis is the conductor of the Concert Choir and teaches coursework in undergraduate teacher preparation and graduate research. A native of Florida with a Cuban American background, Dr. Napolis taught in the public schools of Miami and Orlando. She received her Bachelor of Music Education, Master of Music Education, and PhD in Music Education, all from the Florida State University, under the tutelage
0: of Clifford Madsen, Judy Bowers, and Andre Thomas. In addition to all of these amazing things, uh, Dr. Napolis is active in professional organizations and serves on the steering committee as assistant conference chair for the 2019 American Coral Directors Association National Conference. She also served as honor choir coordinator for multiple ACDA conferences. um, And we see her being a service leader in all the ways. She also works as an active conductor, clinician, adjudicator, um, and engages in guest conducting opportunities at the local, regional, and national level. In addition to all of those things, she publishes amazing research, um, which you can read about in a plethora of journals. So we are so excited today to have Dr. Napolis on to share her wisdom with us. So um, Dr. Napolis, to get started, we have a couple questions that we ask everyone. Um, And our first question for you is, would you tell us a little bit about your upbringing and how you came to choral music?
2: Yeah, so I grew up in Miami, Florida, and my first exposure to choral music was in the eighth grade. I was in uh, middle school and just kind of happened across this uh, woman who really would later go on to become and still is the biggest influence in my life. Her name was Sybil Adcock, and she was teaching middle school chorus. And this um, time with her was just really, really special because she, like so many of us in the field, was somebody who really understood that investing in a choral program was about investing in people and investing in the students that were there and the singers no matter how small and anything else, the the important thing was making sure that they felt that there was a place for them in their program. And like I said, she remains to this day the biggest influence in my life. And I try to get to visit her at least once a year. And it's just really special to me.
1: That's amazing. It, it's like you're reading our mind already, um, Dr. Napolis, because we do have a question about your <laughs> your mentors and um, people who were influential in your life. So looking forward to diving a little deeper and hearing more about um, that middle school director, which is so special that you are still in contact with her. That's very, very cool. Um, Our second question is what event or events, plural, were inspirational for you to choose choral music education as your career?
2: Interestingly, it was um, the second year that I was in choir. So now I'm in the ninth grade and the same teacher says to me, there's this event happening at the University of Miami and it's their honor choir. And I wondered if you would be interested in signing up. And I just thought, well, sounds interesting. And I um, had the opportunity to work with Lynn Gackle and she is somebody who at the time was not, she still had not earned her doctoral degree. So lucky me, I get to work with her, you know, this was in 1989. And still to this day, as I speak with her, I tell her about that particular Saturday and working with her in that honor choir. And I think not just because Lynn is so graceful, she's so professional and she handles herself in this way that is, everybody just wants to be around her She's so likable. But then on top of that, she's just such a fierce woman who understands how to be really musical, encourage vulnerability from her singers, obviously phenomenal musician. But all of those things just at that time, you know, was maybe 13 were so impactful and really made such an impression on me that at the end of that event, it was just really clear to me that it was something that I wanted to pursue in a more um, aggressive way and in something that was a little bit more than just a fun class to take in school. Mm. <laughs> One of
0: the things that I think is so um cool about the podcast that maybe we weren't anticipating is that as we're listening to our guests come on and speak, we are seeing a lot of through lines between some of the amazing mentors. And it was really cool for me to hear you just speak about um, Dr. Gackle. She was an honor choir clinician of mine um, when I was in college. And at that time at the university that I was at, I didn't actually have a female choral director because Dr. Appleshot had gone um, to Toronto and um, we were not Dr. McMullen had not arrived yet, and so she was sort of this linchpin figure, um, and all of the things from 1989 remain true today (laughs) and beyond, so really interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, You talked a little bit about your middle school director, Sybil, which is amazing. Who else has been helpful and influential in your journey through choral music education?
2: I think obviously in the consistency of my having gone to the same institution for all three of my degrees, uh, Judy Bowers and Andre Thomas made such a significant impact on my desire to pursue the profession for different reasons. And in different ways, they filled gaps that I needed filling. So when I think about My teaching in the classroom, I always had Judy Bowers on my shoulder like she's that one that's like, well, are you paying attention to this and are you aware of how you're sequencing your instruction and. You know all of the pedagogical things there is just no finer teacher, she is just truly special and I think about the ways in which. I was drawn to the the scholarly elements of our field and ultimately in pursuing this on the researcher side of things, would have been really easy for me to stay there and just enjoy the exercise in intellectualism and scholarly work. And yet Andre Thomas was always that person for me that encouraged the connection to aesthetics and the connection to he has such a gift for being able to connect with people and to keep everything always about how people feel. Very few people in our uh, profession have the level of charisma that Andre does and that, that's certainly the first thing that you know, sort of smacks you right when you meet him. But it's the follow through piece of that too, which is, every person that has an experience, whether it's a seventh grader in a middle school, Allstate just comes away feeling like a million bucks. And I, I just thought, wow, there's something to that that is so artistic, right? That, that piece of our profession where sometimes we don't always talk about in our um, desire to think about musicianship and musical excellence. There's this whole piece of it in addition to that, which is how do you make students feel and people are the lifeblood of our profession. And people that have that gift, it's just so admirable. And it it is something that I aspire to. And so I think about both of those for different reasons and how they have mentored me into the, the musician that I am because they each brought to it the people first mentality and then thinking about all that comes into the profession. Our profession is not just one thing and we don't just conduct and move our hands we do all of the people work which really matters right and is not lessened by anything else that happens as technicians
1: mm, i love people are the lifeblood of our profession absolutely and for some reason i think some people lose that um throughout their career so yes yeah, great reminder for <laughs> everyone out there and i I don't know, we keep coming back to this idea of community, particularly in the last few episodes that we've recorded and there's just something so unique about touching other people's lives through music and then in turn receiving that back for yourself like it's so cyclical and it's just amazing. And that's why we do it. So,
0: <laughs> for anyone who has not had the privilege of stepping into a rehearsal led by Dr. Napolis, you see that um, completely. It is one of the most beautiful things to watch her work. And so, I hope everyone out there gets a chance to see her um, in her element because it's incredible.
1: Yes, we should have clarified that once again, McKenna is a student of Dr. Napolis. So, <laughs> we didn't mention that at the beginning. <laughs> um, she's amazing you're both amazing we're all amazing we're doing it (laughs) all right so Dr. Napolis you kind of led us into this question a little bit um, in talking about Florida State and your mentors there we were wondering if you could talk about timing in terms of deciding when to return back to school to pursue higher education and um maybe dive into a little bit why you wanted to stay at FSU
2: yeah so from the start, most, most of my thinking was about how I could maximize the financial benefit to being in college without you know, being saddled with a, a lot of debt. And I knew that I was not going to be receiving a lot of help on the parental side of things. We were just you know not in that kind of a position and so staying in the state was exciting as an opportunity to be able to keep things that were state specific in academic scholarships. And Florida State University was a place that I just knew had a really great reputation. And in Florida, it was like the place to go. And also we had the year before my junior year, Andre Thomas was a All-State clinician for the uh, high school group. And so people knew about him, I certainly had, I went to the camp that uh, Florida State has over the summers that first year, 1991, I went to that camp and it just really allowed me to cement the feelings that I had about going into uh, that program and the strengths and being in the campus, which is just absolutely gorgeous far enough away from home. It was about 500 miles, but not being out of the state, you know, so there was some some perks there. And then um, the reasons why I kept coming back and staying were because there were still things that I knew that I needed. So I would say my first degree was a degree in kind of just figuring out choral music and my love of that. By the time I went for a master's degree, it was the very first year that Florida State had started its summers-only program. Now they've proliferated across the country and and are much more available. But at the time, it was a relatively new thing. And Judy Bowers was starting the program, and she grabbed a couple of us at the state music ed conference. It was like, you need to come. You need to come. And we're like, we're going to do whatever you tell us to do. (laughs) And so we started the summer master's program in 1998. There were six of us. And then since then, it became a program with many more states represented, etc. But at the time, it was just mostly alums. And it was a wonderful time for me to start because I think after you finish undergrad and you start teaching for a few years, you start to come to the place of, I now know what I don't know. And that's an important reason to sort of fill the tank back up, right? I now know that there are things that I still don't understand enough about okay, I need to go back to school. And because it was a summer's only program, it was much more affordable slash, you know, all of the things that come with not having to give up my daytime job to, to pursue this. And then the doctoral program was a uh, time for me, I, as an undergraduate, I double majored in music and in math, and I still sort of missed the math side of things and the the ways in which I was fed in that intellectual way, not that music didn't feed me intellectually, but it was just different. And I thought about coming back to get the doctor because I really wanted to learn more about research. And I really wanted to understand a little bit more about that element of our profession in teacher education, teacher training. and. Florida State had one of the most productive music education researchers in Cliff Madsen. And so he was my mentor at the doctoral level. And I hadn't really worked that much with him in the previous degree. So even though sometimes people say, well, why'd you keep going back to the same institution? I kept going back to the same institution and having varied experiences. And then being able to continue working with Judy on the teacher education front, now thinking about it with those eyes was also a different experience than it had been as an undergraduate. So I would say to to anybody who is thinking about the going back to school is it needs to fit your life plan. And of course, there are lots of good reasons why people can't do it that relate really to family, etc. But sometimes, you know, in thinking about that decision, it's important that you wait and teach for a little bit so that there's at least an understanding of what matters. And I think sometimes people that go straight through a program, for instance, I have a lot of our undergrads that say, should I start a graduate program? And I just say, just wait a little bit, see what you don't know how to do as well, or see where you struggle and what needs, you know, some revisiting, and then let that happen with a few years of teaching experience. You'll be much more attractive as a candidate anyway, with some teaching experience and something to offer. So that's sort of my you know, approach to things. Know what you don't know that you want to know a little bit more about. And then see if higher ed you know, sort of works for you.
1: I love that. I definitely felt that moment of, I don't know what I don't know. <laughs> mm-hmm. It is time to go back to school um, and just get a few more tools in the toolbox and kind of dive into those areas of weakness, which can be scary, but also like, very exciting and rewarding. So
0: absolutely love that answer. And I think I genuinely feel like the longer, <laughs> the longer I'm in the profession, the more I don't know. You know, I learned so many things, but then there's this Pandora's box of, wow, there is so much knowledge out there. There's so uh, many amazing resources. And sometimes coming back to school is, is the way to continue to access those and bring them back to your own students. Um, But I appreciate that you also brought up the conversation of debt and financial um, planning, because I think a lot of times that's not something that we always talk about. And it's really important to understand when you go back to school the type of financial commitment you're going to make and just make sure that you've weighed all of your options and looked at how is this going to serve not only me, but the community when I'm done and will this put me in the type of debt where I'm not really able to serve the community because I have to work so hard uh, to pay off student loans? So I appreciate that you brought that into the conversation.
2: Yeah, it's not something that everybody can do just because. And thinking about all of that, sometimes people make the decision and then deal with the after effects of it afterwards, which is understandable and yet sometimes not sustainable depending on what your life goals are and your plans. And so it's important to think about everything. And and to your first first point, I think that is when you know you're doing it right, when you realize Mm -hmm. so much I don't know. Can you imagine being in a spot where you think, okay, I've done learning, I've just figured it all out, I have nothing more, you're doing something right, if you still can come away saying, gosh, there's still this I need to grow in, and there's still this other area where I need nurturing. Of course. And if we're, you know, truly lifelong learners, as we all should be, then we're looking for opportunities for that growth, no matter what. And teachers come in many forms, right? Right. Teachers are available if the student is willing and ready. So hmm. that's an important element for sure.
0: And I love that you said, if the student is willing and ready, and we have all taught all different types of students, some that are more willing and more ready yeah. than others. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, one thing that I've been um, excited to ask you about on our podcast is you, you talk about in your bio um, that you come from a Cuban-American background, and I've had the privilege of watching you teach um, some of your you know pieces in concert choir that have to do with your Cuban heritage. Can you talk a little bit about the intersectionality of your identity as a Cuban-American and how this plays into um, choral music or your philosophy of choral education, if there is any intersection?
2: You know, it's tough because I think in some ways we don't want to be boxed into this is what you are or that your culture defines every element about you. I think there also are some ways in which, you know, intersectionality is a great word because sometimes people associate, for instance, a Cuban culture with people who are really extroverted and, you know, kind of loud speakers. I know that all of my family engagements tended to take on that sort of flavor. But I'm an introvert. And so it doesn't necessarily manifest for me in quite the same way. And so I think about things like, do I think it's important for us to represent cultures in an authentic way in a responsible way? Yes. Do I think it's important for us to not fall into the trap of very narrow-minded this is the only type of music that is worthy of study I hope that people are studying something beyond what they know and what they maybe themselves have have belonged to in, in whatever that manifests and so I think how it may shape me as an educator is just maybe feeling a little bit more comfortable with um rhythm, for instance. That's something that I think is an important thing for all of us choral singers to uh, just broaden our conceptions of what that ought to be and thinking about things like really highly syncopated things happen more in cultures of um, non-Western European canons. And so I think things like that are the ways in which it, you know, manifests. I don't ever want to be the Cuban conductor, as opposed to the, you know, Puerto Rican conductor, et cetera, et cetera, because we're all doing the thing and teaching people and making music. But I think that's probably some of the specific ways in which I've seen it manifest.
1: Mm, absolutely. We, we were just interviewing someone the other day who was talking about the concept of like culture bearers and a culture bearer can choose whether or not to, you know, open themselves up to you, but that's going to be part of their identity. And like, it's... It's our job to receive them and, you know, not to not to keep our view so narrow because we're afraid to explore these other areas, but rather to use that as an opportunity to say, where where can I grow? Like, where is my repertoire list and just my my knowledge lacking and and where can I push myself to explore, um, you know, other music, other cultures, other areas and maybe just broaden our idea of the choral concept and what exactly <laughs> What exactly is valuable group singing? So I I love that a lot. Um, I'm going to maybe move our questions around a little bit. (laughs) Um, I wanted to ask you, Dr. Anopolis, what has your experience been as a young female professor um, specifically in your role right now where you're granting master's and PhD students their own degrees. And can you talk a little bit about what that experience has been?
2: Hush, there's so many um, entry points into that this sort of issue, right? Is it, a, is it a challenge to be a woman conductor in this field? Yes, for all the same reasons why one could say that about anything in society, right? Have we made some progress? Yeah. Have we done some things that have brought us closer to a greater awareness about issues that impact women differentially? Absolutely. Are there still um, places where there are behaviors that can be seen as needing improvement and needing attention. Absolutely. And I think that it's important for us to draw attention to those while also um, keeping our circle widened, right? We live in an ecosystem that impacts a lot of people, women and men and those who identify as neither. And I think that what's important is that we try to dismantle barriers as we see them and some of those come in micro levels you know i I have said this often to many of my students and colleagues the the ways in which interruptions function in interpersonal dialogues is sometimes a reflection of some implicit biases right You're not supposed to be talking now. I'm going to speak over you. It's making me uncomfortable that you've been taking up so much oxygen in this room, and you're female. You know, that that happens sometimes, right? And that's not to say that um, people are necessarily trying to be disrespectful, but for all of the reasons that some of our implicit biases show up in those ways, it's still a thing. Um, And I think that we have many people in our profession who are great at building bridges and sort of speaking the language in ways that continue to broaden our circle. You know, I don't think we ever want to get to a place where it's, um, us versus them or, you know, a very specific antagonistic kind of relationship. Right. And I think, it's important we also that we also have men who are having those kinds of conversations right and that men are are bringing to the conversation some of those sensitivities about hey be careful you know i see this behavior and i wonder if you're aware that that comes across as though you're being sexist and i'm sure that's not what you intended but how about we redirect and reframe some of these ways. I think sometimes those folks who do enjoy privileges have, have a responsibility to speak to that and to find ways to be more inclusive. We are all richer as a result of having everyone's contributions, right? And whether that's marginalized populations, and non-marginalized populations that have enjoyed privilege for many years. We are all richer for you know all of it and there's not an, an exclusion of any that would be welcomed, right? So I think where I come to that with graduate students is being made aware that there is a place for different voices to be heard and that um, graduate students understanding the ecosystem of how they live within that uh, broader culture in our society that maybe once upon a time really was exclusively uh, white males. We think about maybe a lot of people's first all-state conductor was, you know, and maybe some people didn't get the privilege that we had had, you know, of working with somebody like a Lynn Gackle or Judy Bowers. And maybe for some people, I've had students in my choir now who will say, you're the First female I've ever worked with, and I just think, wow, I guess that really is a thing for some people. And so, what are we going to do to um, broaden that conversation and then also have it become more normalized as opposed to some anomalous event? That's that's a responsibility that also you know falls to us. But interestingly, I think the the newer generations of doctoral students are a lot less old school if you will about what that looks like and what choral excellence represents both in terms of music repertoire performed and you know ways again that we can just broaden the circle so i guess the short answer to that is just anything that we can do to draw our circle as wide as possible without excluding others. That's, that's our goal and that's what we hope to impart to graduate students, undergraduate students, colleagues, et cetera, all of the above.
0: I love um, the notes that I'm taking. <laughs> As you're speaking, I'm continuing my Dr. Napoli's note page. Um, I thought that there were a couple of quotes in there that just to bring it back to the listener, you mentioned um, trying to dismantle barriers as we see them. And that's one thing that I know I've been really grateful to, to watch in my time at UNT with you to see you not be afraid to say, well, let's just go back and... Talk about this really quickly. And that's something that I am working on the advocacy of not only self but advocacy of others in a way that's in real time. And I think that it's easy, as we grow up um, to uh, apologize for taking up that space or wanting to have that conversation. And so if anyone's out that anyone out there is still Struggling, You are not alone, um, but Dr. Napolis <laughs> has given us some great wisdom uh, to have that conversation, which I really appreciate. This kind of segues into a question about collegiality and uh, collegiality. This is one thing that I, I really enjoyed in my time at UNT is the emphasis on um, that really, I think, stems from you, Dr. Nablus, about how to be a good colleague and what does it look like to be a good colleague? Um, So how did this come to be sort of at the forefront of how you mentor graduate students? Um, And how do you think that we can continue to be good colleagues? What are some ways that we can do this in the field beyond higher ed?
2: I think it comes with that intentionality. And I think that my mentor, Judy Bowers, was very intentional right from the undergraduate level and certainly at the graduate level that you all will be in each other's worlds for a long time and it's important that you prioritize collegiality. I think it's also really easy for us sometimes to focus too narrowly perhaps on the students musical development and not think about all of the things that get in their way. And my um, mentor, Cliff Madsen, used to separate academic behaviors from social behaviors and that we tend to do really well on the academic behaviors. This is how your conducting can be improved. This is what you need to know about repertoire. This is what you need to know about music history, music theory, etc. But we also know from research that the social behaviors are typically the ones that get people in trouble. Right. And people who haven't yet figured out, for instance, how to appropriately celebrate their peers, sometimes just living in that world of, wow, somebody did something that was exceptionally wonderful. And I should celebrate that. Some people don't understand that piece of it. And all that they can think about is, well, what about me? And what if that doesn't speak to my being celebrated? Right. That's a social behavior. Another social behavior is how you interact with each other in ways that are detrimental to the health of the relationship and on and on. There's so many social behaviors that also relate to just how you connect with students. And, you know, McKenna, I know we've had this conversation several times about that element of with an ensemble. Can you connect with your students and can you prioritize people over music? because too often we flip that, and it comes at a big expense for us. It comes at an expense that also sends a clear message to students that we are utilizing them as instruments, right? Which is the opposite of my philosophy, which is we are utilizing music as a tool, as a vehicle for touching lives and for building awesome humans But we can't get that wrong, because when we do, we pay a really high price. And so I think where we focus too singularly sometimes on the academic behaviors at the expense of some of these social behaviors, everybody understands. Don't be a jerk. Don't be doing stuff that's going to get other people to feel alienated by you. And yet, sometimes we don't see that as our responsibility to teach some of those social behaviors. And I would argue again, that those are some of the things that set up our students best in the field when they are intentional about collegiality, when they are intentional about celebrating other people's successes and not being a jerk. So I think, you know, sometimes the obvious needs to be stated and in, behavioral terms where you can really see, now, did you see when you did that, how that could possibly be misconstrued as uh, jerk behavior? Maybe take a look at some of these ways in which you were not a good colleague to such and such, you know, pointing those things out in specific ways I find to be more helpful than the vagary that comes with be a good colleague. Well, it sounds like a trite expression. Does it mean something or does it just hang on the vine as meaningless? It's important. Mm,
1: there's so much to unpack there. <laughs> oh, yeah, I love that concept of like, let's sit down and have a conversation about what what this looks like and like what you can be doing. And our, our world is very small and niche and we're all connected. So one person's success does not mean your failure. We can all be successful and it will look different for each person. So yeah, yeah, that was mm, wise. Dr. Napolis, let me learn <laughs>
0: Let me learn from your collegiality. <laughs> and I think the concept of the and the mindset of uh, the scarcity versus abundance and being open that, like both of you have just said, there is enough room for all of us, and it we don't all have to do it the same way, even though for a long time history has taught us or shown well, if you do this and this and this and this, then this equals in quotation marks success and i think that slowly but surely by breaking down those barriers every day and dismantling the concept of what it means to be successful because that looks different for everybody that that's going to be a continued part of the journey and a continued part of collegiality
2: and why would we also not recognize that in any given room there are you know five different people with expertise in different things there are some things you do mckenna that i will never do as well as you do because you just bring a certain skill set to what you know your experience your life the way you have been you know raised and nurtured in this profession and yet so often people feel like well if i don't have that element that that makes me less successful no that gives you an opportunity to grow but it also gives you an opportunity to celebrate that somebody else does something really well and as you said it's not a zero-sum game but we all can learn so much about wow the way this person did sometimes it's a really small thing like the way you communicated that element that allowed for them to sing better in tune was exceptionally sensitive and really spoke to that issue in a way that maybe I was just doing it nonverbally and it was less effective. Stealing that, you know, for not if we aren't stealing things from people all the time, then we're not doing it right. And that idea that somebody else is doing something else and that's excellent should be an uplifting thing for all of us and don't we want for every group of people that you work with to be positively impacted by choral music and then that person for that also to be true and that person for that also to be true there's so many choral singers in this world we all benefit when everybody has a rich experience and it's you know a little bit laughable when people would say well because you have this then somehow i am less than nope We just each bring our particular puzzle pieces to that game.
1: Mm, I think we've experienced that directly, or at least I have as the younger sibling of the two of us. People are often like, well, does it, are you just like, is it hard to like be, you know, in the same field? And I was like, no, it's amazing. Like she is my biggest, like one of my biggest role models. And like, she has things that she does in a way that I am just in awe of. And I think back and forth as well. Like, you know, we're very different people and we have different approaches to music and all things. But at the same time, we were raised by the same person and we have these similarities. And, you know, we, I think we can look at each other and say, we're both great. And that's what makes it even more cool. Like, how amazing would it be to conduct together? Like, you know, it just. Ready for that? The Let's table. go. <laughs> <laughs> there's room at the table. If you're looking for a duo of conductors, we're ready. <laughs> Uh, um, I wanted to kind of circle back to something that you said earlier, Dr. Nicholas, that plays into our next question that we had planned. And you said you didn't want to be labeled as a type of conductor, I think is what you said. And that reminded me, I just did a research project on the composer Judith Lang Zaymont. I don't know if you've heard of her. She's a living composer and she's Jewish and has written a lot of instrumental pieces, but also some choral works. And um, they're very difficult and cool. So highly recommend checking her out. But she has been quoted. um, She's written a lot of research on women in the music field and made it kind of a life mission to amplify these people who were simply left out of these spaces and particularly in the written word. Um, And she said she doesn't want to be known as an adjective composer. So I loved that and quoted it in my presentation in class. And um, you know, I think it's important to, to remember that, especially in the light of this podcast, you know we have interviewed a lot of female identifying people because that's our our life and our world that we're living. And I think it's important to raise up these voices but at the same time not simply we don't want to be in a box. we just want to say, hey, like this is this is sometimes still seen as a negative and we want to
2: change that um so in relation to that (laughs) i think there's there's a lot to that element too where there's a very real reason why we highlight these elements and whether that's you know people who are uh, seen in marginalized population a b c d you know sadly we're just not there yet as a as a world as a country as a society whatever you want to say where inclusion happens just by default Right. It just is not. So sadly, but for very good reason, sometimes these um, awareness campaigns, if you will, are important because we need to shed light on who's not at this table and who's not being represented. And are we perhaps being a bit too narrow in how we have these conversations? But all the same, our ultimate goal is for that inclusion to happen by default, where there's so much representation all the way around that there's nobody wondering, well, now where's this, you know, and how is this person's voice, you know, being squished or not? Because there's room for everyone to be there and for everyone to shine. So I think awareness is absolutely important. And then toward the greater good of zooming out and being able to say, okay, now we have. Gotten closer to our goal of understanding that there are many voices that are part of our profession and many of them that can be celebrated. Now we don't need to say, well, do we have the person who is, you know, from this particular region of this country or else we're incomplete, right? We ultimately do want to get to a point where that's just a given. We're not there yet
1: we hope to be there. (laughs) Uh, We hope to be there, but we certainly know that we are not. Um, Which brings us to our next question for you, which we've asked each of our guests, um, which feel free to say as much as you would like or as little, but would you share a time when you faced discrimination and what suggestions do you have to others who might be facing similar situations or trying to overcome this type of adversity in their own lives?
2: I think what I'll share is um, less of a specific instance and more about just specific behaviors that maybe are worth noting because we all will experience these behaviors to some degree and maybe not know how to handle them. It's difficult sometimes because we know that there's a double standard with respect to when a woman is assertive, for instance, right? Sometimes that can be... um, Conceived of in different ways, when um, males would exhibit the same behaviors and be seen as really confident and really, you know, actively um, pursuing something that they're um, passionate about. And so, I think those kinds of things I mentioned earlier—the interrupting thing and and feeling like when you're starting to have a comment and somebody feels uncomfortable that you're even taking up that much space in the room. The inclination is to, to squash and to, to interrupt for some people. And that's not true with everybody. And at the same time, knowing how to respond in those settings without further perpetuating the, oh, well, now she's being difficult, you know, is first about relationship building and relationship building is you know, at the heart of everything that we do. And so it's important that we think about things from the standpoint of, are you going to publicly humiliate somebody in a situation where they're doing something like that? Is it an appropriate thing for you to make an educational experience out of something like that in a private setting where you might be able to effect change? There are some times when I have done that Privately, there are some times when I'm not that invested in the person in order to have that conversation because it does take an investment and it does come with a price in in some relationship dyads, right? And so I think about things like that. And then I also think about elements in which we can stand up for ourselves and elevate others when we see other people who struggle. And especially once we get to a position where we are enjoying privilege. So I enjoy a lot of privilege right now as a full professor tenured at a major research one university that comes with a certain level of responsibility, too, though, that maybe when I was pre tenured, and certainly not as a graduate student, that I didn't have the ability to maybe advocate in the same way for somebody when I saw that there was some sort of mistreatment happening. So I, I would hope that in our respective positions where we see things and we have a responsibility to do something about it, we can indeed do something about it in a way that will set the tone for what behavior is expected in an interaction. And as you see things that you can do something about to help raise awareness of certain issues. And that could be something tiny like, actually, I'd really like to hear what she has to say at a time when there's something going on that you're maybe like, whoa, that was a tense moment and this person really didn't wanna hear what you know, that person wanted to say or was interrupted, take the moment to say the thing that might really uh, make a difference for that person feeling uh, empowered and for somebody else. Sometimes it's not what you're doing for that person, although that's important, it's for the other people that are observing in the room to be able to say, oh, that's how we do it. That's how we set people up for success. And that's how we learn what to say in a way that doesn't come across as though my only investment is in that moment. It's the planting seeds that we all do as educators, right? It's the, now I'm paying attention. I had a conversation one time with somebody where I said, did you notice that in every one of the interactions when this particular woman went to speak, she was interrupted? And this person was, you know, kind of a little bit shocked, but then afterwards, in a different interaction, I saw him do something about that and say, actually, I'd like to hear what she has to say. And so I was really excited that that was seen, again, because it's a relationship building sort of thing, and it was somebody that I was invested in, that I could say, there was some change that came about as a result of that interaction. Something positive happened to change that person's behavior later. And then somebody in the room saw that and went, oh, I guess that's what I could do as well. So it's all of the seeds that we plant, but then it's also the small behavior. So I wanna make sure that we're not exclusively focused on the macro level, but also thinking about those small ways in which these sorts of things can be brought to other people's awareness
0: i feel like the last like six minutes that you just spoke should be the start of your ted talk um and i will be a huge advocate for that to get out there and become a thing and i just um in case people don't know already the gratitude that i have for your advocacy is overwhelming and i know kira and i have had many conversations about graduate school at the institutions we're currently at and from our colleagues and peers and um, to have someone like you in the room who's so intentional about saying well hold on let's go back and and address this and in that way that you had mentioned the relationship building that it's not just Okay, a panic, a freak out, let's make this big scene, but in a way that says, okay, let's just take a second and rethink. Um, and it is important that we have more people in the room who will do that. Um, and I, I think we both have experienced things, all three of us have probably experienced things where we didn't have someone in the room like that. Um, and having to process that and work through that, you gave us a lot of tools to think about, and then also how to help our students to understand how to advocate for themselves something that i said when i was talking about the podcast to a group of our undergrads at unt is i said advocacy is appropriate and talked about some of the ways that you can advocate even if you are not a full professor and so i think i've learned so much from our guests that we've had on the podcast about how to do that and to take those steps and i hope others will as well Kira's nodding. (laughs) Big nods. A lot of unspoken things here. Um, The last question before we get to our fast five uh, is, what is one thing that you see needing changed in the field of choral music education? And how do you think we can help to implement that change going forward?
2: Uh, I think the change that is needed is to fall away from some of the things that fall exclusively under tried and true. It's always been done this way, and therefore we should continue. And expanding that notion of what counts as real music. You know, for such a long time, there was this poo-pooing of certain genres of music, certain time periods of music, et cetera. And I think that we have made big progress on that front, but I think that we can still continue to advocate for new voices coming through and um, reconceptualizing maybe how we define uh, the canon and how we continue to expose our students to experiences that are maybe not just exclusively what we learned in our choral literature classes, for instance.
1: Mm, That's great, great advice. (laughs) Let's all, we just all need a little bit of Dr. Napolis sprinkled into our, <laughs> our day-to-day interactions. I loved what you said about small, the small actions also amounting to something. I think that's really important. And that's something that people not in our field at all can absolutely take away from this. You know, like it, you making the choice to say, let's just pause or, you know, let's take a second can be so beneficial for the entire community that you are affecting. And that could be maybe you're my husband and you're a lawyer, like, you know, this could be in any setting. And I think that realizing that our small actions can truly not only benefit others, but actually uplift them in those tiny moments and make their whole day is, I mean, that's, that's how we make things
2: better, right? Yeah. Yeah. And going forth and just being excellent serves as a really great model for lots of people, people that are looking in ways big and small, just, do what you do and do it with excellence and things happen and really wonderful things happen as a result when you're dealing with people. That's, that's about what we can assume is the pinnacle achievement for us, right? And tony, touching people's lives and making an impact on future directions. And they're feeling impacted by what choral music has to offer, what you in the room advocating for others has to offer all of those things.
0: Well, our last couple questions are ones that we ask all of our guests. Uh, They are supposed to be fast. We've discovered they are faster for some than others. So you take the time, (laughs) you take the time that you need. Um, Our first one is what is a favorite choral octavo that uh, comes to mind right now, or a composer who you've really enjoyed uh, studying?
2: Gosh, There's so many things about the work of uh, Jake Runestad that I love. And I feel like he always keeps things relevant to both, you know, social issues or just things that are really beautiful and need, um, highlighting somebody I always look to as, as inspiring.
1: Mm, Agreed. (laughs) Agreed. All right. Number two, what is one misconception about you?
2: Misconception. I think I touched on a little bit of this earlier, but sometimes people that know me as a Cuban female will automatically assume that I'm an extrovert and that I'm, you know, somebody who likes to be loud and go to parties and I'm a go to bed at 930 kind of girl.
1: I will say that's true in our field too. It's a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of extroverts. So it's a big energy when we're together. So,
2: true.
0: I think there's also a lot of introverted extroverts or extroverted introverts as well. I know I I think I used to identify as a full-blown extrovert, and um, now I'm like, hmm, I don't know anymore. I think I am extroverted, but if I don't have the recharge time, I definitely can't serve people as well. So that's been a journey, um, and it's been great to see more introverts in my life uh, because I, I learned from my introvert friends. I'm like, hmm
2: and sometimes we just have to learn how to adapt right and be those ambiverts because it's just an important thing this situation calls for this when i get up in front of a group of 300 singers it's time to put introvert jessica aside and just go okay i've got to do some things here to be a bit more <laughs> you know extroverted but it's still that piece of it and in the needing to recharge and in the yeah you deal with the extra social activity at the end of that when you're depleted that's where it shows up
0: And somebody talked about um, on the podcast, sort of like pulling from all of your different parts of yourself, depending on the community that you're with. And so that it's not about putting on a hat, but maybe you just need a little bit more of this part during this thing. Um, And I thought that that was a really interesting way to talk about that. Um, So what is one word to describe you leading an ensemble?
2: Hmm one word, say committed in that whatever that task may require, that's what I'm committed to, whether that's at that moment, keeping students engaged, whether that's at that moment, helping students to love choral music a bit more. And sometimes it's just committed to their musical growth or personal growth or, you know, any of those things. But I say committed, that's something that is important at any given moment.
1: Mm, That's a great one. Great answer. (laughs) (laughs) Number four of five is what is a favorite choral memory? Gosh,
2: so many. I think about that first honor choir that I discussed that was just super special. I also think about just in my own um, teaching. I used to teach at a middle school in Miami, and there were so many just students that were i taught at a high gang activity kind of a school and there were so many ways in which i learned for instance the very small thin line between somebody joining a gang and somebody joining a choir and just that need for a social experience and some of my memories that come about as that as a Time in that school, Jose Marti Middle School, was some of the students who were just those really hardcore, rough kids who you knew very easily could have been swayed into joining a gang, etc. That just made a choice to be really excited about choir and coming into um, that experience, and you know, lots of memories at the college level, and of course, we remember the tours we took with our friends and those those kinds of things. It was always. Make a mark and stay with us.
0: That is really impactful, um, and I think especially going back to that concept of choir as the social outlet and how that line is so thin. Um, you know, whether it's a high gang activity community or whether you know it's some other choice, um, even in in terms of choice of another elective. You know, to take it to that point. And we have a lot of young teachers that listen to the podcast, and I think that there's a lot to take away from that answer. Yes. Speaking of um, teachers and people in the field and people that are just getting their footing, one thing that we ask people to share is a choral blooper. I, I think we all recall a time where we may have made a choice or something happened to us and we're like, we can never do this again. We can't go, keep going in the field, um, but we all have one. So if you can think of one, we'd love to hear your choral blooper.
2: You know I think this one is a little bit less catastrophic but it's something that I remember just because it happened recently. I was conducting the Georgia Allstate and it was one of those little like podiums that sit on the floor and I went to come onto the podium I'm always just super nervous to get on podiums because you know I need the podium because I'm a little height challenged but at the same time I never know what the condition of the podium is going to be well anyway I climbed onto the podium and just slid for, you know, a a little bit. And it was just super embarrassing because everybody had just come off of this, you know, glowing introduction. And now blah, blah, blah. And I got up and I was just like so embarrassed. And just anyway, it's a small thing, but it also just was something that stayed with me because it was it was embarrassing. And then the very next conductor or somebody was like. Let's change out the podium so the same thing doesn't happen to them. But you have to be so graceful and you have to be so, um, you know, understanding that in the big realm of everything, those kinds of things, you know, are less important. Do we have bigger things that sometimes come up that lead to imposter phenomenon and all of those kinds of things? Of course. but. Putting that in in perspective and, again, thinking about what any particular time is asking of us. It's those kids in the room, and that's what that's about. It's not about me, and it's not about my feelings about X, Y, or Z. You just kind of need to get on with that and move on. (laughs) It's about the kids in the room.
1: Hmm. Well, take comfort, Dr. Napoli. You are not the first and surely will not be the last to talk about Uh (laughs) entering, (laughs) entering onto the podium and perhaps just walking across the stage and having an accident. Um, And you know what, our students will have those accidents as well in their own life. So what a good learning moment for (laughs) for everyone. (laughs)
2: Yes.
0: Well, we are so thankful for your time today. I know that our listeners are just going to um, soak up all of the wisdom that you've offered today. And we're so appreciative of you sharing your lived experiences and helping to inspire uh, this field. Uh, we're so grateful. And if you haven't seen our social media, uh, feel free to check us out. We are conduct.her.pod on Instagram or conduct.her on Facebook. And you can read more about our amazing guests um, online. So we hope you'll check us out. Thanks so much for listening. This has been
2: Conductor.